Hello, and welcome to another episode of God, Sex, and Sangria. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing, Rachel? I'm good. I actually have Sangria with me today, which I'm super psyched about. And I know that you don't because it's morning in Bali. It's Um, morning. Yeah. So I have my coffee. (laughs) How is Bali? It's beautiful. I feel like this is one of the most magical places I've been so far. It just feels like, it just feels so, like everything feels so connected. And one of my friends who's been living here for a while said that the island will kick people out who are not good. Like it just actively kicks people out. And then my partner and I were talking about that before and he's like, yeah, kind of everyone I can think of. I'm sure there's exceptions, but that has like been like, I don't like Bali. They're typically not good people. And it's like, good, don't stick around. Yeah. And it's sort of like how New York kicks out people who aren't tough enough. <laughs> yeah. It's like very different. But that's sure. what New York does. Yeah. And it's just like, it's, it's an island. I feel like there's obviously like, I'm not trying to ignore that there are problems with gentrification here. There is. But it's also an island that I feel like really cares about love. And one of the the guy who works at the hotel that we, I was at last night, I went to this town that's like a little bit outside of where we're staying. And he said that it's because he's like, we have a very strong culture. We have a very strong culture, but a culture that embraces other cultures. So like you can be here and you cannot be Balinese and you cannot speak our language and you cannot be our Hindu but we're still very open to like, but we still want you to feel like be welcome here and like you still get to be here. And so it has this, it does have a very strong culture. Like I don't see, I mean, unless there's like force, I don't see like them giving up their way of life, which is really cool. How are you doing? How's Denver? Boulder. Boulder. Um, Boulder's great. (laughs) It's a little smaller than Denver. It's beautiful and warm and like, It's June, and I'm as tan as I would get at the end of August in Boston. Like, that's just how much sunshine and warmth there is. And it's amazing. It's one of those things where I consistently have this moment of, like, those poor suckers that live in Boston being stuck there and believing that there's something worthwhile in being there. (laughs) I don't get it. But also, maybe we want to keep people there so that, like, there is this interesting thing in, in Boulder where people are always like, oh, this isn't the Boulder I grew up with or this isn't the Boulder of the 70s or the 80s and 90s or whatever. Like all these people is. from the East Coast or from the West Coast keep coming here and like infiltrating. And it's really fascinating to be like one of those people infiltrating and having people still feel like it's okay to tell me that and to be like, wait, but don't you realize that like I am one of those people? <laughs> like... I am that, like, East Coast liberal who, like, moved to Boulder because it culturally fit me and it's warm and beautiful here. Anyway, it's interesting. (laughs) That is interesting. So what Rachel and I wanted to share with y'all today is we both have been reading two different books that sort of touch on something that we see coming up a lot in sex conversations and conversations around sex that we feel like needs to be or could should be addressed. And we like these books, and we also have critiques. So uh, I read Vagina by Naomi Wolf, which is 
really interesting. And I do assign this book. It's I reread it. So I had read it before. I reread it. And I do assign this book in the Erotic Life Mastery course when we talk about the vagina and the anatomy of the vulva. But I also felt like the second time around reading it, it's really been interesting because it has more to say that I think is really, that I didn't catch when I first started reading it like seven years ago. And so there's some stuff I want to talk about there. And you have been reading Rethinking Sex, which has also been really interesting for you and has had its own little shockers in it. And also, yeah, so we wanted to dig into it because I think what's coming up for Rachel and I both is the same thing around sex, especially casual sex. So Rachel, why don't you talk about Rethinking Sex and share a little bit of your experience with that book? Yeah. So I heard about this book because Christine Emba, the author, it's Rethinking Sex and then the subtitle is A Provocation which is so fun. But Christine Emba is a sort of late millennial, early Gen Z. Is that what's after millennial? Early Gen Z journalist who works for, she's a columnist in the culture section of the Washington Post. And she wrote this book and it was published pretty recently. And she was interviewed on, I think, one of the Vox Media podcasts. And so I was listening to it and I was like, ooh, this is really interesting. Some things I agree with, some things I don't agree with. It's also really fascinating because she was raised evangelical and then in college converted to Catholicism. So she sort of has like Lori and my history combined in some interesting way. And she doesn't have a background in theology. She doesn't have a background in sexology. And yet she's writing a book that has some theological framings that are shaped in a secular fashion. So she definitely is making some theological points. And she's also pulling from ideas that as somebody who studied theology, I'm reading it and I'm like, that is a very Catholic idea. That way of thinking, that philosophy, that way of framing the question of how do we do sex well is very, very Catholic from a theological and philosophical bent. And also it's clear that like she's trying to frame this book for a secular audience. So she's not going so far as to say, oh, we're pulling from Aquinas or we're pulling from Augustine or we're pulling from wherever or we're pulling from this document that was written by Pope whoever. She's saying these are just things that we should be thinking about and things that are true, even though she's not really backing up her points, which I, I feel frustrated about as somebody with a theology degree to be like, you should just own that you're coming from a Catholic background and that you're pulling from Catholic sources. Even if you're not conscious of where they're coming from, those ideas are coming from a Catholic space, which is super fascinating because part of what she's pushing people to do is really question where their assumptions and ideas and preferences for sexual acts and around sexuality in general are coming from. So that question to me is somebody who's a developmentalist within the framing of faith looks at it and says, oh, you're asking people to go from like stage three, which is like socialized groupthink sort of concept of faith to or around sex or around whatever to a stage four where you're sort of more self-authoring where you're conscious of what you're pulling from a community or what you're pulling from another community and how you're framing things in a way that feels really good for you as an individual. And she's asking people to do that, which I think is a really healthy thing to ask people to do. But again, she's not fully aware of the philosophical tradition. At least she's not 
articulating that of where some of her ideas are coming from, which I find frustrating. I hear what you're saying because I often feel frustrated when people skim over a theological principle and critique religion in that and don't seem to understand what fully what they're critiquing. And I think, obviously, our last podcast, we definitely think religion should and can be critiqued. And we have reasons why we are no longer Christians anyways. But there's also a way in which I feel that my understanding of why I don't agree with certain principles is more fully formed because I've investigated that principle fully. And to be able to communicate how deeply our understandings of sex have been formed by religion is also, I think, how we dismantle these concepts. And so when we don't go fully into these concepts and understand them, then we oftentimes end up maintaining the system, just flipping the system in a new angle without actually dismantling it. So as you were talking about this, I thought about how in uh, the vagina, she critiques the understanding of Mary as a virgin, perpetual virgin. And she says, like, when in truth, the Bible never even mentions that she that that she was a virgin. And and it's very likely based upon some some scholars even would argue that she had multiple children. And I was like, some scholars, you mean Protestant church, the entire the entire Protestant movement would say that Mary had multiple children and had sex with Joseph. Like you didn't just say something radical, but it's clear that she thinks that's a radical idea because she comes from a Catholic background. It's the same thing when I hear people talk about Richard Rohr and get so excited about Richard Rohr as this like liberal religious thinker. And he eeks towards the left, but he's, he's offering Franciscan theology, which is, Certainly not new. It's very, very, very old. And it's beautiful and it's great and it makes complete sense that people like it. Same with, I'm sure for someone who's raised Catholic, to think that Mary and associating Mary with not having sex is is really liberating to realize that there's a way of understanding Mary where she includes being a sexual person. That's great. But it's also, that doesn't make it radical just because it's liberating you, because many other people could be understanding that way in a different way. And we're not dismantling the patriarchy just because we're saying Mary had sex. In fact, saying Mary had sex is an understanding that has been used to maintain the patriarchy for many Protestant women. So it's it's an important thing to be able to actually suss out. Yeah. And I think a piece of this could also be like, well, who are their audiences Right? Like, who are we intending to write for? And that impacts how we approach what we're saying about different concepts. But it does also indicate to me, at least, like, who's writing things about theology and about sex? And are these the people we should be listening to? Or should we be seeking out people who have spent a little bit more time thinking about and studying these topics? Because it also seems like, and I don't mean to like make this a, a personal thing, but the people that Christine is interviewing in her book, or at least that she interviewed and then decided to write about, all are having very similar experiences to the experience that she's trying to like say is a trope, which is that women have casual sex and it's usually not pleasurable for them. And they're oftentimes coerced into doing actions that they don't feel great about, even if they're consenting to it. So like a huge piece of this book is critiquing the idea that consent means that that sex is good. 
And so part of the idea is that we need, we need an ethic in society that goes beyond just consent. So what would that ethic be? And a lot of where she's pulling this more expansive ethic of what good sex could look like is actually from Catholic and Christian concepts, even if she's not naming that, which I think is really interesting. And this is how I think patriarchy can, can still stick around, right? Because obviously you and I both know that those Catholic and Protestant concepts aren't liberating inherently. And it's interesting to me, when I think about the book Vagina, I think something is happening very similarly. So this book is really interesting and fascinating. And she goes into a lot, she interviewed a lot of doctors and gynecologists and tantra experts to understand what the vagina is on a spiritual and medical level. And so all of, I feel that is very well researched, even though she is not a medical doctor or a tantra expert, she is getting her information from experts. And she, the first half of the book is talking a lot about the science of the vagina and how the vagina and the brain are connected and how when the vagina is stimulated, it can like awaken vagina owners into like sometimes even higher levels of consciousness and how it has not been respected as this sacred space on vulva owners' bodies in the way that we really should be honoring and respecting the beauty of it. And then she also goes into how it is also the abuse of the vagina can correlate to depression, anxiety, and like long-term states of PTSD that is not adequately being researched right now. So women who are victims or people with vaginas who are victims of sexual assault will be given antidepressants instead of like the actual like healing of the vagina being addressed. So really interesting, really important stuff that I have seen and heard being supported by other thinkers. And I think she gives like some very tangible science behind the pudendal nerve, essentially. But then some of her conclusions from that information then come in to assume that this life-giving, heightened state sexual experience can only be had in a committed relationship. And that this idea that casual sex cannot open the door for having these experiences and that there is no, that the idea of like the sex positivity movement being critiqued as something that has just led women to just think that they can have sex like men, instead of sex positivity being exactly what she's talking about is women understanding or people with vaginas understanding the power of their vulva and tapping into it and seeing their vulva as sacred and living into their sexuality in a way that is uplifting for them that being the solution. And that meaning you can have sex with someone in a committed relationship. You can have some sex with someone casually. You can have sex with someone for an intentional spiritual awakening or like a spiritual practice. And like all of these things can be life-giving. And, and when we, and we don't understand that when we assume that sex is own, when we put sex in these like two categories of like committed relationship or casual that and casual is meaningless and what Audre Lorde would call the, the pornographic and life and I mean committed sex is beautiful and life-giving then then we're actually missing it because it's actually talking about it in the terms of the polarities instead of the erotic which is the bridge between the two polarities in in alchemy and so when we understand that like the erotic bridges the gap 
and it's the space between the gap. And we're talking about sex. We need to talk about what the erotic really is and not what we think the erotic to be. And like, that's the key there, right? Is that like, well, yeah, we can talk about sex as bad when we actually don't understand the erotic, then we're actually going to continue to have bad sex and we're going to have lackluster experiences all throughout life because we're not bringing the erotic into our reality. Yes. Part of what Christine talks about in Rethinking Sex is wanting to see sex as sacred and, and spiritual, that there's a spiritual element to sex, which is fascinating to hear that word be used. And she also, somebody that she interviews, um, talks about how they want to have body-soul unification while they're having sex. So they want that to be involved, which is an innately spiritual concept. But she doesn't define what spirituality is or what the soul is. And I think that's where language around the erotic would be far more useful because the erotic has a broader reach. It's not so charged necessarily. I mean, it's charged with a lot of things, but it's not charged with the baggage of spirituality and religion like soul and spiritual are. And it seems like there's this way that what she's articulating is that people need to see sex as something that's more than just a transactional experience between two people that may or may not involve orgasm, but something that, that actually contacts a deeper part of who we are and a part of our identity, which she consistently names soul. Again, without defining what soul is, which I really get frustrated about it because it happens all the time in theology. And I'm always like, define it, define your terms. And I the one book I've ever seen that defined that term is Margaret Farley's Just Love, and she defined it as potentially just our mental state. And I was like, oh, Margaret, I expect better from you. You're a religious sister, and you teach at Yale Divinity School. Like, come on. She gives some openness to a different definition, but that's part of what's in the footnote that she has where she like puts a little asterisk next to the word soul, and that's how she potentially defines it. Anyway, but this idea of soul and this idea of having sex be spiritual, I think really, if we're talking to especially a secular audience, really needs, we, we have no other option than to pull in a word like eros and the erotic as a, con, as a philosophical concept that's actually quite well fleshed out, not only in continental philosophy like Sartre and de Beauvoir, et cetera, and also like in Audre Lorde and in womanist philosophy so well fleshed out that like, why are we not throwing that word around? Which may also be that like, she just isn't aware of it and that's okay. But it's surprising that if you're going to write a book about sex that you wouldn't come across like the word Eros, especially if you're trying to get to sex having a deeper meaning. Well, I think it's also because people aren't trying to understand the erotic in outside of sex. So I think when we hear erotic, we assume sex and we assume we have the definition. And I mean, as somebody who teaches something called the Erotic Life Mastery Course, like this is constantly like all my content. And I just, when I was listening to, I listened to the introduction of Rethinking Sex this morning. And I even said, uh, I told Rachel this before we started recording, is that sex is not the erotic any more than eating is dinner. And that when we see the erotic written in a piece of paper and we're saying, oh, this is, we see the erotic written down on a piece of paper and we're saying this is the erotic, it is sex, and we don't take it into a deeper understanding of what it means to be soul-connected, to desire in and of itself, to be soul-connected to pleasure in and of itself, and to want to explore desire and pleasure in a soul-connected way, i.e. what I understand soul to be is like the essence of you, 
the essence of you in its purest form, then then we're missing out on sex in general. And you're not going to get that type of sex, spiritual sex, in a committed relationship any more than you're going to get it in casual sex. If you don't, if you're not connecting desire and pleasure to your soul. Yes. I just want to quote my favorite quote about the erotic, which is, the sexual models the erotic, but does not exhaust it. So sex is a model. Like if we talk about mutual pleasure and really being present and really being embodied and really being giving and receiving simultaneously, yes, it models what Eros does in all aspects of life. But it's just one area where most of us have perhaps more access, which I think is also where like Song of Songs is so brilliant is because it's talking about Eros. If we are, all of life models these elements that we see in Eros. And like in Song of Songs, the reason why it's a sacred book, the reason why it's in the Bible is because it's giving us a space to experience, oh, Eros is most potentially easily experienced within the sexual when the sexual is done well. And so we can read that book and say, oh, how do we do sex well? And also... How does this relate to Eros in this broader way? What elements do we see in sex that are articulated in Song of Songs that also relate to the erotic? That's sort of not about these two books, but it seemed important to mention since it's there. And one of the things, being in a Hindu culture, I'm starting to explore what Hinduism says about the erotic. And I get that somebody who's been studying the erotic for 10 years to not have studied Tantra sounds crazy, but I'm actually like intentionally didn't because I don't, I'm not interested in appropriating Tantra. I'm interested in seeing how Western understandings of the erotic meet Tantra. Does that make sense? And so I'm like, okay, now this is the time for me to start understanding this. And one of the things that this woman who I was watching on YouTube, who she gets so frustrated when people think that Tantra is sex and that it's about sex and that you have you study Tantra so that you can have good sex. She's like, that's not what it is. <laughs> so it was this really powerful moment where it's like, I get you, because the erotic isn't sex. And oftentimes when I, I'll do like a live about the erotic or I'll post something about the erotic and people will be like, I get that it's not about sex, but what do you think about this concept? And then they just talk about sex. And like, and it's about sexual ethics and like understanding sex and sexual ethics. And it's like, the reason we have bad sexual ethics is because we don't understand the erotic, not because the erotic is sex. And so let's not talk about, like, let's almost not talk about sex. Let's talk about pleasure instead. Let's talk about good cups of coffee and great slices of cake and beautiful walks and sunrises. Let's talk about that. And how can you connect that to your genitals and like have like a pleasure experience in that center of your body outside of sex? Then you can start talking about sex. But I don't know, maybe my pedagogy is messed up. Maybe I need to flip it. But I feel like there is a way that we need to be able to understand both within each, each other. It's probably my life mission because I feel like this is, this is the thing I've been battling with for like <laughs> so many years. And yeah, and I think this is why what these two authors are getting at, that we don't have a solid sexual ethic, is not because we're having one night stands. It's because we don't know how to have one night stands. And that's, that's the mistake. Yeah. So I'm just going to throw out a few questions. And one of them directly relates to what we were just talking about, which is why I feel like it's a nice segue. 
And that's, do our bedroom actions impact society? Is sort of a broad question that she poses. And particularly she's talking about this within the context of kink and like, oh, if somebody has been fantasizing about strangling somebody, and I guess there's a tendency in hookup culture right now for people to try to asphyxiate their partners without asking for consent first, which is interesting because like what she's referring to as consent is like, did you consent to starting sex, but not did you consent to every action going along? And the last person I had sex with for the first time, did that make sense? The first time I had sex with somebody, the last time I first, was the first, yeah, okay. So we literally went through every article of clothing. Every time it was like, do you mind if I kiss your neck now? Do you mind if I kiss your arm? Do you mind if I do this? And like, it didn't feel like it paused the action. It actually felt like it was really blue, like beautiful and fluid and like really just caring and compassionate for the other person because we knew that both of us were coming from a sort of emotionally sticky space. So one of the things I think I would critique about this is that these people that she's talking to are not doing consent well. They're not doing consent in the way that somebody who's truly a kinkster would do consent around the act of asphyxiating somebody or the act of doing whatever. So that's just a side note. But the larger question of do our bedroom actions impact society is kind of an interesting one. Some of the ways that she talks about it potentially impacting society is like people getting surprised asphyxiated during sex or people whose younger siblings might be coerced into having anal sex because that's what's being talked about in Cosmo. And those sorts of things I think are true that like our cultural surroundings do impact what we do in our own individual lives and that kind of thing. But that's more so the opposite rather than what we do in the bedroom impacting society. Like society, it's more like how does society impact what happens in the bedroom? But I'm curious, Lori, like what do you think about that? Like how is it that our actions in the bedroom do or do not impact society? Well, before we started recording, we talked about the idea that the personal is political and the political is personal. I guess she brought up this concept in the book, exploring the idea of the personal is political, which she's 100% not the first person to say that is very much a valuable womanist. I believe it comes from womanism. It might be pre-womanist philosophy about hair for specifically women of color. So the personal is political is old. I mean, I also don't want to make it sound like she's appropriating women of color's mindsets because she's also a woman of color. So I don't want to like make that sound like I'm calling her out or anything like that. But I do also think that I also think that like it's common to think of the personal as the political as being purely about abortion because that's always what I've interesting thought of it as. And she talks about about the right to privacy. Yeah. (laughs) She talks about the right to privacy and how that was argued first and then we got to abortion and then later on in the book in a totally different chapter she talks about the personal as political. So I think For me as a reader, that was the through line I made. And that's certainly the way that I had interpreted it like growing up. I thought, oh, the personal is political is really about birth control and abortion. But interesting. It originates as how we do hair. hair, And it's the way it affected women of color. But I think that philosophy, this might be a tangent, but that philosophy does come from, I think it mirrors other feminist issues. Just like it was a womanist issue for women of color's hair. It does. It comes up again. So I do think the personal is political and the political is personal because it affects us personally. 
I think that the way we view sex mirrors how we view gender dynamics in general as individuals. If somebody is coming up to me in a sexual way and in initiating sex with me in some way that doesn't make me feel safe or doesn't make me feel comfortable, I would assume that that same person does not see women as fully equals or fully capable of consenting adults. They still have a journey around, and I say women because I'm having sex with men as a straight woman, but they're not viewing, they have a weird relationship around sex and they have a real weird relationship about the understanding of women as equal consenting adults. Does that mean they're evil? No, it probably means they're a guy who's been growing up in patriarchy and they have a lot to <laughs> figure out. <laughs> they might be a really kind person, but they have a lot to figure out. So I think that what we see people doing in the bedroom mirrors very likely potentially how they're viewing things outside of the bedroom. But I also think in the concept of like in Tantra, and since again, like I literally just started diving into this this week, so I'm not, I know you know a little bit more about Tantra than I do, but please do not take what I'm about to say as an expert opinion, is we start in the root and what happens in the root moves up to our higher selves, higher levels of selves. So I do think it's possible that there's someone who's super aware of consent and the humanity of their sexual partner, but not aware of the humanity of people outside of, of the bedroom because they're just beginning that exploration. So it doesn't, it doesn't always equate. That said, when we're talking specifically about BDSM, I think that if somebody, if I, because I have played a lot in the BDSM world, let me just say this. If I'm on a date with a guy and he says, yeah, I'm dominant and he doesn't have any ropes or blindfolds in his home and like he has not actually played, he's not dominant. He might like have a tendency towards being dominant, but like I'm not going to trust him to tie me up. I'm not bringing over ropes over to his house. Like he has to like, like there's like a level of an understanding about BDSM that like, I mean, if you want to be dom me, you need to know. And so like, if we are, if we are living in a world where we don't have conversations about consent before we have sex with someone, then, then my question is like, I don't know if I'm rambling or if this is linking together, but like, then we need to have conversations about how consent mirrors in other aspects of our lives. If we're not, well, let me say this, this is the real thing. If we're not having erotic sex, you probably, if you're having sex based upon like exchanges, then you probably think of most of the world as a concept of exchange and not in a way that is like energetic loving exchange. You're seeing it in a world of like capitalism. And that then becomes a problem. So everything you've said relates to another question. Like there's four other questions I have and all the, you made points for all of them. So I'm going to stop you there and we're going to go on this tangent of capitalism. So <laughs> in chapter five, <laughs> in case somebody decides to read along and because I'm still untraumatizing myself from grad school and feel like I need to cite things, she talks about self-objectification and how part of a problematic way of doing sex is that we self-objectify ourselves as simply an object for someone else's pleasure. So me as a woman, instead of seeing myself as 
a whole person who decides to enter into a sexual encounter with my own hopes and my own desires and my own knowledge of my body, as well as my own desires to give someone else pleasure and the whole complexity of my being as to how is this encounter with this one one person, whether it's in a committed relationship or it's a casual relationship, how is it going to impact the whole of my life, seeing myself purely as an object for the other person's pleasure. And that, she doesn't say this, but when I was reading that, I was like, that is purely coming from our capitalist society. It's also purely coming from the fact that our specific version of capitalism in the U.S. was based primarily at first on slavery. And the idea that like a body is not really someone's actual own personhood. It's literally for the purposes of someone else's enjoyment, whether that be the enjoyment of profit from a crop or it be enjoyment physically through rape. So that sort of thing, I think, is it's really hard then with that sort of mindset to not say, actually, it's not that we have this problem purely from a sexual standpoint. That's not the problem of like consent being taught on college campuses. That's the problem of capitalism and society bleeding into our bedroom encounters so that I don't see myself as a full person because when I go to work, my employer only sees me as an object for their gain. And my teacher sees me as an object for their rankings to be good so that they don't lose their job. I mean, that's usually not the case for teachers. Sorry, but like, I'm sure there's somebody out there who teaches like that. All the teachers I know are loving and caring and care more about their students than themselves, usually. I just did a live this morning on Pussy Cash Suite by uh, Hattie Gossett. I was going to say Hetty, Hetty, Hattie Gossett. Can you say that book title again? Pussy Cash Suite. It's a poem. Pussy, as in like vagina. Cash, as in money. Sweet, as in like an uh, like a a symphony. Dolce. No, no, not sweet. Like tastes good. Sweet, like I don't. I mean, I don't oh, know. Like a, like it has like Plaza Sweet, the play. Not sweet, like a hotel room. <laughs> I. Oh God, I'm so I sound so uneducated right now, and that's fine. Like um, like an orchestra. Like like an orchestraic piece. Oh, like okay, it has cool. three movements. It's a poem, mm-hmm. but it's broken into three movements, and she calls it the Pussy Cash Suite. And I'm glad that we clarified that. Yes. <laughs> so I was like, I hear this, but sweet can be spelled five different ways. Multiple. Different also, meanings. all of them have five letters. So people who are playing Wordle, keep that in mind tomorrow morning. Interesting. So um, she talks about the relationship between pussy and cash. And how in the beginning of the – in the first movement, it's like she's a woman awakening to the power of pussy. And to clarify the definition of pussy, pussy is the energetic force of the feminine that exists in all of us. But oftentimes women, when we are – people with vulvas, when we are young and just starting to expand in our sexuality, there's this moment where you realize that pussy has power. And she talks about how she realized that, like, that boy she really liked suddenly, like, couldn't take his eyes off of her. That he was, like, watching her as she moved her hips. And there was a way that she had an ability to, like, intoxicate this power of pussy. And then she realizes in the next movement, she realizes the relationship between cash and, cash and pussy. And that cash had the ability to destroy. And that a man who didn't have enough money might get angry and drunk and then beat his his wife. Or he could also use money to control her pussy. And how money and cash 
intersect with each other and that women will also give up pussy for cash and this relationship between that. And then the final suite, the final movement is called cash. And basically she talks about how cash disconnects us from the earth and how cash disconnects us from our value of like what is humanely connected to our ability to create and that that is also violence against pussy. It's very much like an, I think today we would call it like an eco-feminist conversation where she's like, cash gets us to destroy the earth. I mean, this was not written, this is not like a modern day piece. This is old. I think it's from the 60s, but I could be wrong. And it's actually kind of painful because the stuff that she lists at the end are like, shit, we're still dealing with. I could be wrong. It might not be from the 60s. It might be a little bit earlier, but that we use electricity and running water and we pollute the earth and um, we don't have fresh air and we have woman hating and homophobia and undemocratic hierarchies all continue to have most resounding impact and pussy, of course, since the pussy is the real bottom line. And so essentially her conclusion ultimately is that we're all like the power of pussy leads a desire for control. Like a man turns and looks at a young woman when he's 14 years old and he's like, I want that. And then society says, you need money in order to have that. And so then they use money to control pussy so that they can get more pussy. And because they want more pussy, they pollute the earth to make more money to get more pussy. And she's like, and then the end is like, when will we realize that pussy has all the power? And when will we give power back to pussy? And like, there's this, like, I get shivers every time. I, I mean, God, I get shivers every time I hear this. Yes, it's really, yeah. This mm. is it, right? And I think, and this is why I keep talking about peace with money. And I'm talking more and more about how the erotic leads to peace with money. Not a, not necessarily to have a lot of money, although like I hope, every, wish everyone like enough money to have all the peace that they need. But that if we don't have peace with money, we won't have peace with sex. And if you don't have peace with sex, you won't have peace with money because there are two intertwined realities in our society. And that until we are able to understand that we don't need money to have sex, healthy sex, because a lot of women think that they need to have money in order to have healthy sex, because they don't want someone to use money over them in order to have it. And at the same time, when we don't think we need to have sex in order to have money, we don't need to get a man to provide for us in order to be taken care of. We simply just need to have the erotic. We just need the erotic. And when we are connected deeply to the erotic, that is when we can step into a reality where we can actually have peace, mind, body, and soul. And that really well (laughs) segues us to another question. (gasps) Holy crumpet. That was amazing. And I want to read that poem. Um, Hmm. We'll make sure we put a link in the show notes. So one of the other things that she talks about is that women cannot be co-equal partners with a man when it comes to a sexual act. And she specifically cites that a couple things. One is that the purely physical component of who gets pregnant. It is the person with a uterus who will get pregnant. It's the woman. So like she's taking more of a risk in the act of having sex because of the potential of getting pregnant and pregnancy has a whole bunch of both like health consequences because it can impact, you know, we have a really high maternal, we have a very high maternal morbidity rate. Is it morbidity? That's not quite the right word. 
mortality, mortality. Morbidity is something different than mortality in like very, in scientific, in like statistical analyses. So it's maternal mortality rates are really high in the US given generally the amount of wealth that we have. And then on top of it, just the way that, you know, there aren't as many single dads in the world as there are single moms. That's, you know, only 60% of child support payments actually make it to a person. That's a remembered citation, so that might not be completely accurate, people who are listening, but that's around the number that I think she said in the book that she was pulling from an actual study that I'm going to trust her to have done her research on. So, But this idea that women can't be co-equal partners with men because of pregnancy It just felt really uncomfortable to read. And I think part of it is because of some of the things that you just mentioned, Lori, but also like the, like the prevalence of birth control or even like, I don't know. I just, it didn't sit well. And I, I understood it from like a, yeah, sure. Okay. Physiologically. Yes. I would be the person responsible for carrying a child, but because we're not seahorses, but also like, what do we, how do we, how do we deal with that? And how do we sort of frame that from a more feminist perspective? Because it feels really gross to say that I can't be an equal partner with a man because of the fact that I carry a child or have the potential to do that. Yeah, well, it seems to me like it's coming at sex from a patriarchal perspective, that there is something less than for a woman because she gives birth. That there's something inherently less about a woman because she is not able to produce capital when she is a mother. Because yes, being a full-time mother, whether you're working, a working mother or not, you're a full-time mother because, well, you're also a full-time father when you're working, right? You're still a full-time father. But in our society, we put more of the burden on raising children on the woman. And there is a reality that like there's a less capability of earning. But when we create hierarchies based around income, that's called capitalism, And to say that we're not equal because she's not earning as much or she needs support checks in whatever form that comes from is problematic in and of itself. Yes, it creates a stronger difficulty. So there is higher risk for women to have sex. But I also think that this is where communication comes in. And I don't think getting rid of casual sex changes this because this is a conversation you should be having in committed relationships as well very important is, I mean, one thing that I've told men when I was started having casual sex a lot is I told them like, if I get pregnant, I cannot guarantee to you that I will have an abortion because I'm single and I'm in my thirties and I really want kids someday. And while I would love to have kids in a committed relationship, if I find out I get pregnant during casual sex, there's a possibility that I will keep this child just so you know. So if you want to have unprotected sex with me, that's fine. But if I get pregnant, well, it's not fine because I don't have unprotected sex. But like if we end up getting pregnant, you and I end up creating a child through this act. Like that's something you need to know is like that's not going to be a guaranteed thing. And also knowing that as a woman, do I am I okay with this person not being involved? And that was something that I considered for myself before I started engaging in casual sex. Am I okay with this guy not being involved in raising a child with me? And for me, because I have the community and the systems of systems around me to take care of that, I mean, 
in my dream world, I'd move in with Brendan and Daniel and we'd live in a, (laughs) we'd live in a like gorgeous, like space where my child has like these two other amazing adults in their life. And we, I don't know, have a garden together, but like, I'm like, that sounds like a great life, but I was set up in a space where I'm able and lit to live in a way that that is an option for me. And I've, and I have an understanding of my life outside of needing a nuclear family and understanding that if I have sex outside of the nuclear family structure, I'm going to be opening up the door for me to create family outside of a nuclear structure. And that doesn't make me less than. That makes me liberated from the, re- from the restrictions that capitalism has created around sex. And that doesn't mean that while I'm living in a house in that fantasy world with the garden and all that stuff, like that doesn't mean that like I'm not going to be trying to make money because I will need money. I still live in capitalism, but I don't need him to send me checks. And I think that for every woman who's engaging in sex with someone with a penis, that where there's a risk of getting pregnant, because even if you're on birth control and using condoms, you could still get pregnant. You understand the consequences for that in your own life and you've thought about it. And the other thing I've also said to men who I'm with is I expect them to have thought about it too. Like, are you okay if you don't want a kid right now, but I get pregnant and I have a child, are you okay with knowing that your DNA is in the world and you're not involved if you don't want to be involved? Like they need to think about that too. It's not just something that's on the weight of women. Because I think men also have been realizing this more and more as they realize like she had a child and I'm not involved and I have to be involved because that's what good guys do. It's like, no, you should probably have had that thought process and dug through that before you started engaging in casual sex. And I think like to an extent that's what she's pointing at is that a couple parts. One is that I don't think that many people actually have those conversations with their partners before they have sex. I definitely do. (laughs) That's something where, like, I sometimes frame it in a sort of, like, more less, like, cut and dry, but more of, like, a, okay, cool. So if something happens that we don't intend to happen right now, and I do this even if I'm going to be using, like, condoms and am on birth control and the whole thing. Like, it's still a but, but still in the realm of possibility. And the way I most recently have framed it is, like, so if we're stuck making decisions that neither of us really feel compelled to be making, what are you – what what's your role going to be? What's, what, are, what are you going to do about it? Like, I'm not going to, I don't like to go super direct about it to be like, hey, if I get pregnant, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, that feels a little bit too direct. So I sort of do this, like, at least that's what I've done the last time I, I had to have that conversation with someone. But it I don't think most people do have that conversation. Just like I don't think most people have the conversation around, like, when were you last tested? Even though that one's like, We've got a quick little sentence to say around, like, when were you last tested? And what have your sexual experiences been since you were last tested so that I kind of know if I'm still going to go through with this? Like, how much risk am I taking on? And especially after COVID, like, we've all had those conversations with each other around, did you eat at a restaurant? Have you worn a mask at the grocery store? What is What's happening? So we should be more okay with being able to at least ask somebody, when were you last tested? And then also the other risk factors involved with the act of having heterosexual sex is what happens if this doesn't happen the way we, if there is a consequence here that was unintended. Like I actually am in a position where I'm like, I don't know what I would do if I was pregnant. I think I'd sit with it for a long time and maybe give the baby up to my best friend, Alexis. That's probably what I would do. (laughs) 
I would have an open adoption with Alexis and her husband. Like, <laughs> but the thing is, is like, there's a lot of guys who aren't thinking about that. And then they find themselves when a surprise human life shows up shocked and upset because they don't feel like they have control over the outcome. And that is inequality, right? Like that's, that's, that's also like, if you have casual sex with a guy and you get pregnant and you're like, oh, I'm going to give it up for adoption to my friend Alexi. And he's like, I don't want my child to be adopted. Right? Like now suddenly he has a realization about what he wants with his own life that he hasn't been considering. So I don't necessarily think it creates an unequal situation. I just think we've done a huge disservice to men by not explaining to them the consequences of their actions very well and making them feel like it's not going to bother them if there's a child out there that's theirs when there's a lot of guys who would be very sad. I think a vast majority of men would be very sad to find out that like a woman they had in a one night stand with had a kid and they never were involved in their life. And to assume they don't want to be involved in that child's life is also sad. Not to say that there aren't men who also don't want to be involved, but it's just sad all around. Mm. One thing that I know I've seen sort of anecdotally on Boston College's campus, especially thanks to Carrie Cronin's class where she asks students to go on a date, like she's, you know, world famous at this point for that one assignment of asking her students to go on a date. And they can't spend more than $5 or something. Like she has a cost limit on it and they just have to ask somebody out on date. But one of the people that Christine interviews talks about how he's so scared to ask someone on a date because it could be seen as sexual harassment. And yeah, you're nodding. And I'm like, I sat with that and I was like, ooh, I don't know. I mean, it's like part of it's like how suave are you? How capable are you of asking that question in a way that doesn't feel like it's crossing a boundary? Because it totally can. I'm sure, Lori, you have been asked out a bajillion times by people where it feels like this is creepy and weird. I, too, have been asked out in ways where I was like, that was creepy and weird. But I've also obviously successfully dated people. So I've been asked out by people in a way that's not creepy and weird. And one of the things that she mentions that I do think is sort of an interesting point to make is that because of the prevalence of online dating through apps or through websites or whatever, we're oftentimes meeting and dating people, one, without having to actually like go through the awkwardness of I'm seeing you across the bar and now we're chatting and now I'm going to ask you out. Like that doesn't have to happen. So we're already assuming that we're in a context where we're trying to date each other. But the other thing that she mentions is that we're not contextualizing the individual that we're looking to go on a date with within a community. So unlike, you know, even if we look back to high school or college where like you date someone in high school, everyone knows them. Everyone knows you. So if you do something that's kind of not cool, the whole community is maybe going to be involved in it. And so it sort of tempers your potential for doing things that are unsavory because you know that there's a, a community holding you. And so she sort of articulates that, especially in larger cities where you don't necessarily have any mutual friends, that there's a larger likelihood of people sort of transversing boundaries that they wouldn't necessarily cross otherwise. The main thing is, is it actually like, how do we differentiate, differentiate if something's sexual harassment when someone's asking you out? And then also this idea of like community and when you're dating someone who's not really at all a part of your community and you're not really a part of theirs, 
how do we go about making sure that our we're both on our best behavior other than just like being a good human, which I would hope everyone would be on their best behavior anyway. And I sort of have a positive orientation toward people in general where I think we're all doing the best we can all the time. It's just that some of us are less traumatized than others. Right. I think that there is a sense of like being comfortable with creating our boundaries and being comfortable with other people creating their boundaries is what I'm kind of trying to get at is that, and of course there's always danger when you're interacting with other people on macro and micro scales, but to disengage from community is not feminist. That is not the feminist act. To engage with community is the feminist act. To engage in, in the healing of inequality is the feminist act. And so isolation is not it. And I think about how, like, if you're a guy listening to this, how do you hit on a woman in public without being harassing? You don't harass them. Like, you go up to them and you say, I really like your shoes, if you like their shoes. And you start a conversation. Hi, I don't want to interrupt you, the book you're reading, but I just wanted to, but I'm looking for another book and I'm curious to know what you're reading. Like if we're actually coming back to Eros and not objectification, if we're looking at people that we want to potentially be in a romantic relationship through the lens of the erotic, we're examining, we want to get to know them mind, body, and soul. We don't just want to get to know their body. And so if you're genuinely interested in a genuine real connection with that person, you're not going to be harassing them. Because if you go up to a woman and you say nice tits, then you're harassing her. But if you can go up to a woman and say, like, is that coffee good? Like, find your inroads. Like, find the thing that you can say to them that's connecting to them, their mind and their soul, not just their body. Like, my boyfriend hit on me on an escalator. And he basically said, like, I like your shawl. He didn't say, you're hot, want to fuck? And like that, and because he approached me as a human, I responded to him as a human. And I think that that's what it comes down to. But I don't get bothered with pickup artists or guys who hit on me if they're talking to me like I'm a human being. If they're talking to me like I'm an object, then I get annoyed with them. And I think we can energetically tell the difference between the erotic and objectification. And... And if we get to know the erotic, then you're not going to have a problem with hitting on people. And you're also going to be very clear if you're in, in danger or not. I love that. And I think it's, yeah, it totally rings true. Just like, are you actually taking interest in the full person in front of you? And that also means that like people can sniff it out if you're not really interested in the book that they're reading. And it's also true that like usually part of what attracts us to talk to somebody is their physicality. And so it's sort of a given like, you don't have to actually articulate that you're physically attracted to somebody if you come up to them in a space. Like, I don't know, I was at, a, I was at the St. Julian, which is like a fancy hotel in Boulder, sipping a cocktail, waiting for some friends. And this older man, and by older, I mean like in his 70s man, comes up to me and starts talking to me. And I was like, of course he's attracted to me. Like, of course he is. Is he trying to get into my pants right now? No, he's literally asking me about what I'm reading. Like... <laughs> And then we had this really great conversation and we've like gone to brunch and I like have it on my to-do list to like reach out to him again to grab coffee again. Because we had a beautiful conversation because even though sure, there was an there was an, an attraction there being like, this is an interesting human. I want to get to know this person. She's reading a book while sipping a cocktail 
in a hotel lobby. Like what's happening here? Right. And she's like, I was at like a standing table, like not like a sitting table. I was like standing with like a backpack. Like it was a weird circumstance. You would be curious. What is this person doing? And similarly, I was like, what is this man who's in his 70s doing trying to ask me a question? Like, that's not usually people don't usually breach that many decades of age in public. What is this person all about? And there's an attraction there. That attraction doesn't necessarily mean like I want to take you to bed with me, but attraction is what pulls us to know anyone that we know, regardless of that. And that is Eros, right? Like attraction and Eros go together. And I think that even if he did want to sleep with you, like that's okay. Like it's okay that somebody wants to have sex with you. It's not okay if they coerce, manipulate, and force you to have sex with them. But like... If I go on a date with someone and they want to sleep with me and I don't want to sleep with them, they're not harassing me. Like, and I think that that's, and I think that that comes from a place of being comfortable with the erotic as a woman and being comfortable with knowing like I am attractive and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. And that being inherently attractive is not inherently putting my body at risk or danger. Like, and it's a sense of, she talks about this in Vagina, about how we have a generational awareness of the violence against women that lives in all of our bodies. And it's something which she doesn't hit on is that that's something that we heal as we come in tune with the healing in our relationship with our bodies. So that when you come to a place where you're like, I am attractive and this man is attracted to me and like you're kind of like, you probably are attracted to me. That's Okay. And I don't feel threatened because you're attracted to me because I don't associate your attraction to me as a need to manipulate and control me. I associate your attraction to me as just a natural and normal thing that happens when a man who's attracted to women sees a woman that he's attracted to. And when men are in tune with the erotic, they can understand that I can get to know her mind and her soul without having to fuck her. And when women are in tune with the erotic... They can know that he, I can just be a beautiful mind, body, and soul that he is attracted to, and that is it. And like seeing me, hearing me, and knowing me does not exist only in the bedroom. And we can expand that. And if you are in a committed relationship with someone or you do decide to have sex with them, that is the foundation of the respect that is lacking in all these analyses of casual sex. Because then when you are approaching the other person like that, that's when you say to them, so just so you know, I'm on birth control and I expect us to use a condom, but also like, I think it should be clear that like, if there's any consequences in what happens, be it disease or pregnancy or any of the other consequences that can happen from that, like, this is how I feel like it's going to be, this is how I feel comfortable handling it. And I want to be clear with you about this. And like, I want to be able to sleep with you and enjoy your body and you enjoy mine and our connection with each other. But this is a, a being open to having those conversations. When were you last tested? You know, what is your, like, are you sleeping with other people? Do you use a condom when you sleep with other people? And open up those because you do want to protect that person. You don't want to not protect that person because you're seeing them as a full being. And we didn't need to, like, go to the soul level conversation. Like, you mentioned soul, but we don't have to really actually even bring that in because it's more about just respecting a whole, the whole person, however we define that. It doesn't, actually, it doesn't actually have to go to a place that's theological when we're really just talking about humanistic ethics. 
So I guess sort of what we wanted to conclude with was this idea that like casual sex is not maybe the problem that Naomi Wolf is pointing to and that sort of consent only education around casual sex is not, is not really the problem, but that it's a problem of respect and how much we respect ourselves and how much we respect others as well as self-knowledge. Like part of it really is like knowing yourself well enough to know what kinds of casual sex or casual relationships you can or cannot handle on all the levels that you can and cannot handle it, whether that be physical or emotional or spiritual or whatever. And then the other thing that I really was coming coming away from, from this book is that we have to, as a society, understand that mistakes are okay and that mistakes are going to happen in circumstances that are complex and sex is complex. It involves my body, someone else's body, maybe another other someone else's body, and all of us navigating our desires and what feels good to us and figuring out what feels good or doesn't feel good. And inevitably, even in a loving, caring, monogamous relationship that you've had for years, someone's going to accidentally touch somebody in a way that doesn't feel good, whether that be like, oh, there's a hangnail and that doesn't feel good right now, (laughs) or if it's like, oh, you tried something new and that actually doesn't work for me. And we all have to be okay with both hearing someone else's saying, "Mm, that didn't work for me and not having it just lead us to shut down. But also on the other side, being able to speak up and say, hey, in a loving, caring way, not in like an ouch, stop, because that's going to totally just be not cool for the other person to hear. But to be able to say like, actually, that doesn't feel good to me. Let's try something else. We need to grab some lubricant or like you have a hangnail, go take care of that and then come back. (laughs) Like, yeah. Yes. And the other thing that's coming up for me that I have written in my notes, and this may be too tangential and this may be something for another podcast, but one thing that I noticed in both of these books is the equating of sex as if it's always a committed relationship and casual sex as if we're talking about the same thing. It's sex early in a relationship is different than sex in a committed relationship and that there's more communication that happens early on in a relationship and a deeper understanding of what is going on that is required versus in a committed relationship. And I think often people who are uncomfortable with casual sex jump to committed relationship very quickly and then don't have the don't understand the conversations that are necessary for casual sex. Again, this might be a whole another podcast, but I was thinking about this like I was hooking up with my boyfriend, I was sleeping with my boyfriend, and he and we have a dom-sub relationship that sometimes is there, sometimes isn't there. It's very casual. It, it's 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 our own dynamic. He put my hands behind my back. My hands are behind my back in like a forced way consensually conversations happen. If this was someone who I was having sex with the first time, I'd probably have a safe word. But instead I went, that feels weird on my wrists. And he went, oh, okay. And and like, which is because we know each other, it, it, there is like, there's so much conversation around that action that like it, we're able to create a safety around it versus like the, the conversations have happened. And I think sometimes we expect that knowledge to be with a committed relationship without the conversation. I think that does sound like another episode. 
It sounds like a really fun episode to talk about. So I think, yeah, our, our conclusion is like, I think for me is the conclusion is we need to bring the erotic into our conversations about sex and the, the real erotic, like an actual deep understanding of eros instead of this, as Audre Lorde would call the plasticized sensations of the porno- pornographic. <laughs> and I also think that we need to like, you know, stop making a straw man out of casual sex because that's not really the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really popular right now. Like there's been several podcast episodes I've listened to lately where people who aren't researchers in sex <laughs> are saying that casual sex is the problem. And they're also not super conservative. They're like on on the liberal side of the this perspective from a political standpoint, but also are saying these really interesting things about casual sex that I think are making a straw man out of it. So we need yeah. to stop doing that. Yes. And maybe start actually interviewing sexologists on your podcasts, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I think that's everything we have for you for today. If you're interested in more uh, from Rachel, you can follow her on Instagram at rachel.alba.coaching and me at Lori Kimmerly. If you're interested in learning more about sex therapy and sexology and getting connected to soul and sex, you can reach out to Rachel at www.sexwithspirit.com. And if you're interested in learning more about tapping into your erotic power, you can visit me at www.lauriekimmerly.com. Anything else we should add, Rachel? I f- that feels good. <laughs> the two books we talk about talked about is, Rachel, what was the book you talked about? Rethinking Sex, A Provocation by Christine Emba. E-M-B as in boy, A. And I was talking about Vagina by Naomi Wolf. And we will see you next week for another conversation about God and sex. Bye.